Welcome to the 400th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I speak with Drexel University Dean of Engineering, Professor Sharon Walker, about engineering education in the time of a pandemic. Reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. As always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, January 17th, 2022, there are 5,540,875 deaths globally from COVID-19. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, Erica Chang, motivated by the pandemic to help, dies at 24. This was published April 27th, 2021 in the New York Times by Sam Roberts. Erica Chang who was born in Flushing, Queens, graduated from Texas A&M University in 2019 with dual degrees. She was a rising star in the Society of Asian Scientists and Engineers and had contemplated a career in medicine, possibly as a doctor, but when the coronavirus struck, she decided instead to focus on how to better deliver care. She made the career change to become a project manager, the society said in a statement seeing the need for process improvements in the healthcare system, especially during a pandemic. Chang, who lived in Katy, Texas, just west of Houston, died of complications of COVID-19 on April 6, 2021, said Khan Vu, the chief executive and executive director of the society. She was 24. Her parents were also infected. Her father, Chikai Chang, died of the coronavirus five days later. He was 57. Among their survivors are her mother, Ling Wang, a homemaker, and Ms. Chang's younger brother, Felix, who graduated from the University of Houston and recently enrolled in nursing school in Texas. He was attending school and was the only member of the immediate family not infected by the virus. Erica Chang was born on April 26, 1996 the daughter of immigrants from Taiwan. Her father graduated from engineering school and served in the military there before immigrating to New York, where he ran a laundry with his brother in Brooklyn. He married in 1994, worked for a bank for a decade, and transplanted the family to Houston in 2007. Ms. Chang enrolled at Texas A&M after graduating from Hightower High School in Missouri City, south of Houston, which offers a concentrated program in medical sciences. She earned degrees in biomedicine and industrial engineering in 2019 before joining the staff of Fused Industries, an industrial, civil, and commercial construction company in Houston as an engineer. She became an engineer because she just enjoys efficiency and problem solving, Mr. Vu said. 
Beyond that, she was an extremely empathetic person who cared for everyone's well-being and what's best for them. In 2019, as a college senior, Ms. Chang served as chairwoman of the Society of Asian Scientists and Engineers National Conference. She managed a virtual version of the conference last year and was a collegiate representative on the Society's board. Her online memorial service on April 25, 2021 echoed with tearful remembrances from friends. Hamza Kanut, an engineer, recalled Ms. Chang's passion, determination, enthusiasm, optimism, and kindness. Shekhar Mitra, the president of Innopreneur, the consultancy for startups, and a former senior vice president of Procter & Gamble, said she will be remembered forever for her inclusive leadership style and her empathy and caring for all who collaborated with her. The obituary of Erica Chang, who died at 24 of COVID-19, in April of 2021. Okay, I'd like to turn to the conversation for today, and I'm really excited to share this 400th episode with Dr. Sharon Walker. Sharon L. Walker, PhD, is Dean of Drexel's College of Engineering and Distinguished Professor in the Department of Civil, Architectural, and Environmental Engineering at Drexel. She's a Yale-trained, Yale University-trained water quality systems expert focusing on the fate and transport of bacteria and nanoparticles in water. She's also a fellow in the Association of Environmental Engineering and Science Professors and in the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Karen is a winner of the Fulbright Fellowship, for which she visited at Ben-Gurion University of the Negev in Israel. She's received an NSF Career Award and held an Elate Fellowship. She's also produced more than 250 conference papers and publications, and in 2018, won the AEESP inaugural Marianne Liebert Award for Publication Excellence in Environmental Engineering Science. Sharon Walker, it's good to see you, and welcome to COVID Calls. Thank you, Scott. It's really a pleasure to be here, and I'm still thinking about Ms. Chang and that beautiful obituary you wrote and of the wonderful potential that was lost. Yeah, that that was part of the um, collection of obituaries that the New York Times was doing for a while. They stopped that last year, and, and I can't help but wonder if they haven't thought about bringing it back. When they stopped, it seemed to mark a kind of a what they thought, many people thought, was a turning point. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I'm not sure. You know, we're back into into a very dark place right now, and and that story was one that really resonated with me. I'm glad that. I'm glad I did with you as well. Um, let me start the way I generally do, just find out where you're calling from and how the pandemic is looking there. Well, I'm calling in from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, your old hometown, and uh, things are a bit grim, but I'm optimistic that Omicron may have begun to uh, settle down a bit here. Looks like we may have peaked at the end of last week in our cases. At least the Northeast seems to have uh, just crested that peak. I took a note uh, where we are in Pennsylvania, if you're interested in, in some of the data. I was looking at the New York Times earlier today. And in the last 14 days, we've seen a 58% increase in, in COVID cases, 39% increase in hospitalizations, and 84% increase in deaths. Uh, bringing our state to 38,619 total deaths since uh, COVID 
reached us. Uh, so it's it's been a tough time. I feel like we've <laughs> we've had all these ups and downs for a while, and and this has been a particularly rough patch, somewhat reminiscent of I would say spring of 2020, sadly. And what's happening at Drexel right now in terms of getting students back in class and faculty back in the campus? So Drexel University is on the quarter system, which means we had uh, classes start right promptly at the beginning of the new year. So the first Monday morning after the holiday, which I think was the 3rd of January, our winter quarter began. Hmm. So the university decided to take week one and two virtual and we will be starting week three tomorrow, uh, and it will be in person. That's um, based upon efforts to do some pretty extensive testing. We had the students moving slowly over the past week with extensive testing. Uh, and I'm optimistic that we're in a good place to start in-person courses again. A lot of universities across the states have been delaying in-person classes until two weeks or three weeks into their term for, for similar reasons. So I'm I'm hopeful that all this this caution on all the additional testing they've been doing with the students will will make the next week run as smoothly as possible. Oh, we'll talk about the impact on students, particularly with your unique vantage point on that. But you know, even of these kind of small adjustments, you know, delaying return for a couple of weeks, what do you hear from students about that? Or at this point, has it just become they're used to receiving the advice and instructions from the university, and they tailor their lives appropriately. I wonder how they feed back at this point. Yeah, interesting question. So I would say our Drexel students, I'm particularly fond of them, are a very earnest, hardworking group uh, that uh, for the most part are rules followers. So <clears throat> I have found that when we've given mandates for safety and caution, relatively low levels of complaint. They have really been uh, partners in trying to make sure that we educated them in the safest way possible. So even through this entire pandemic, the number of complaints that make it to me have been actually surprisingly few. I think that the students uh, understand the complexity of what, what we're trying to do and are very thoughtful. And so uh, I have, have heard from a few students about this winter quarters approach, but not as many as, as you might anticipate. And from those I've heard have mostly been nervousness about returning. There are a few students that would like to stay virtual. Uh, they're grateful that we started the, the quarter virtually and would like to extend. But at this point, the university's made the uh, decision that unless a student has a special accommodation, it's expected for them to be back in person starting this week. Uh, but for the most part, the, the demand to be back is <laughs> we're hearing more from the parents. The parents mm. are so worried that the students aren't getting uh, the education that they should have by virtue of this sort of in and out and in and out of face-to-face of -face to hybrid. Um, it's a concern I think all parents have for their students, whether it's K through 12 or college. Um, but the students themselves, I think they, they want to maybe be back and be back together, but maybe not back in a classroom. <laughs> right, of course. They just uh, want to be it, out of their parents' basement and back with their friends. All right. And, and of course, that's the you know, just like in September, I mean, January should be the same. It should be, you know, we've been at home with the parents now a few weeks. We've been fed well, and it's time to time to get away. And then you find out the day before, or a day or two before, you're going to be staying home. That can be a little, a little it can jarring. Can be disappointing, Keep... but they haven't complained about that. 
So um, I want to just underline as well, because she's been such a frequent guest and actually a host of COVID calls, the incredible work that um, the public health school at Drexel does, and particularly want to shout out Esther Chernak, who's our like in-house epidemiologist for, for COVID calls. So I can only assume, you know, that team, which also includes Marla Gold uh, and many others, I'm sure, had a pretty um, busy holidays. I can't imagine. As I was watching, I watch the, the New York Times um, app every day at this map they have the United States and the color changes with cases. And, and as I watch the pinks go to purple, going to darker, darker purple, you know, in our area, and then those colors moving across the country over the holiday, all I could think of was, I'm just looking at my app. I really feel for Esther and others who spent their holiday looking at that data so carefully uh, and having to make these tough calls. I actually admire some of the choices that they made. They, they actually made the call to take the first two-week virtual uh, quite early in December so that faculty could have time to prepare, students could be aware. So I think they've, they've just done yeoman's duty in watching the data and, and making some good science-based decisions. Sharon, let me ask if you don't mind, maybe you could share a bit of your own experience in this pandemic. I've been asking guests to share a personal memory of this of this time. Is there something that really sticks for you that when you think about what this COVID period has been like? Absolutely. So one of the the real take homes from this experience is reconnecting to all of our humanity and our needs that I think often in the workplace we tended to ignore, right? We didn't uh, tend to talk about what our personal and mental health needs were in the office. COVID has normalized that, right? We have visited people's homes. We've seen their cats and their children uh, in the background. We've, uh, we've, we've really sort of entered the personal space and lives of others that we work with, which has been incredibly special. And one of the places I felt this as a leader is in connecting with those that work for me or work with me on the challenges we are having balancing our life with our caregiving and, and home responsibilities. I, I have four young children. Only They were only eligible to get vaccinated um, right after Thanksgiving. And so we are only a recently vaccinated family. And so I have been living in a bubble longer than many others, or at least those without children uh, or without young children. And it's allowed me to connect with many who've had, who have young children and caregiving responsibilities, those who have stayed in this bubble a long time, it's given us a way to connect to each other that I think have brought our team together. Uh, and when you see the humanity, right, you see the children running around in the background of your Zoom calls. When you uh, talk about your return to work schedule around reduced aftercare because uh, of COVID or that you can't come in because your child's been exposed yet again at school, these kind of conversations uh, have changed the whole power dynamic of the workplace. I actually think it's been for the good, um, or at least I, th I would hope that supervisors and leaders uh, continue to use that for the good, as opposed to trying to, to mandate certain policies and regulate the way people are trying to make a balance, but instead show a little empathy and hopefully the workplace will allow the flexibility even beyond COVID that will give people more of a sense of balance in their lives. It's such an interesting set of insights and, and, you know, takes me back to those 
first few months of the experience of the pandemic in the United States, where, as you describe, and people, you know, meetings like work didn't completely stop. Obviously, um, it just transitioned for those who could work from home. Um, and you're right, we were we were looking inside people's homes, and maybe they had the backdrop, but you know, a pet sort of comes through the backdrop, or you know, mm-hmm. there's there's the world outside the the room, which is happens to be our our lives happening. And I worried that we've kind of forgotten that a bit in these recent months. So I'm glad I'm glad you brought it back to the fore. Do you think that this kind of um, empathy is the word you used for the difficulties that people face in somehow managing caregiving, uh, childcare, being part um, much more apart than they might have been used to of their children's education? I guess my question is how how will we hold on to that experience or how do you think people will hold on to that empathy? Because there's a lot of, of course, the other side, which is let's normalize, let's get back to the way things were. But I wouldn't be the first to observe that that was probably not sustainable. The amount of work that people were doing and, you know, the the forced lack of care somehow as if we lead these two separate lives, a work life and a home life. And I think you're showing that the pandemic kind of pulled back the curtain on that a bit. Absolutely. So I would hope that organizations continue to keep this awareness and and grace and allowing employees some level of flexibility so that they can manage their complex lives. Uh, I think now that employees have seen a level of flexibility, the ability to work from home, especially we returned to, to campus last fall full time. And we came up with a, I think, a really generous, flexible plan where employees were asked to be, at least you know, my college, on campus three days a week unless their job required some different combination, but with flexibility, understanding that child care, caregiving responsibilities, um, transportation accessibility could vary day to day for everyone uh, due to the pandemic. So we've had this level of flexibility that I think people have really appreciated. And I think organizations that continue to have that type of approach are going to thrive. We've seen so many people choosing to change their course, right? During COVID, we realized what our life was and what mattered. And a lot of people decided to change their career trajectory, decide, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to work in this kind of environment. And we see people really pushing for and expecting now that level of flexibility. So if I were to speak not as a as a dean, but just as a manager of a major organization, a strategy for talent management is to keep that level of flexibility. I think the organizations that try to go back to the lockstep we had before will suffer the loss of talent, maybe not immediately, but over time. Uh, they'll see see dramatic changes. In, in at, I also would say particularly, uh, you know, I don't think Gen Z and millennials are going to put up with a traditional workplace. They were already pushing the limits of the traditional workplace. Mm-hmm. But I don't think we're going to be able to retain them in our organizations if we don't start working with them. And honestly, my particular philosophy is you can get the most out of everyone's potential if you just give them some flexibility and some freedom to make judgment calls. And so... I'm hoping that uh, you know, as a as a culture, we'll we'll uh, give people more flexibility as as a new way of of life. You're listening to COVID calls, and I'm talking today with Sharon Walker, who's the dean of engineering at Drexel University. And Sharon, you and I have talked about disaster many times over the years. Usually, it was you patiently listening to me describe 
my research and and finding innovative ways to try to plug that in with your engineering faculty, which I always appreciated. But I wanted to ask you a little bit about your own background. I mean, you're a water quality expert. Um, did you have training in pandemics? I mean, you know, the, the technical side of what's moving across our news feed every day is, you know, it's brought up to a level where just most of us can kind of understand at a very superficial level. But I've been curious throughout this time, you know, how how much in the weeds you've been able to get and, and how much sort of training thinking about these kinds mm -hmm. of disasters you've had coming into this. So the closest I've had to disaster training in my own academic uh, college years was that as, as a civil and environmental engineering undergraduate, and you were doing uh, analysis of fluid mechanics and flows and dam development and, and water and wastewater treatment, you would plan for the 100-year flood. But the reality is those seem to be happening weekly at different parts of the, you know, or these major storm events, uh, nothing like we were trained to manage. Um, I mean, we, we were sort of told that those were so rare, you didn't design for those. And, and now we see that's, that's the new normal. Uh, as to, you know, even with my work with bacterial pathogens, there was nothing to prepare us for the scope of, of this a particular pandemic disaster. I think public health programs speak to that, but typically engineering hasn't. But I'll tell you, <laughs> this is changing what we think belongs in the curriculum. I think every day we're learning more. But this gets at climate change broadly. I, I'm a big believer, if you don't mind my sharing a bit, I'm a big believer that we need to educate all young people going through college about how climate change will impact their lives in the context of their discipline that they're training in. I I think every engineer needs to understand the impacts that climate change will bring. And so in doing so, I hope we'll, we'll not have another generation come through who won't be prepared. And and that has to do with, uh, you know, fields that people traditionally thought climate change made no difference. I'll give the example of electrical engineering. I remember speaking to a faculty member a few years ago who just made a comment. Well, that's for you environmental engineers. But, but no, uh, if anything, we saw uh, with outages um, of our internet networks and loss of, of data when uh, Hurricane Ida really hit our region hard. It showed us that the resilience of the infrastructure to support uh, data um, and um, 5G networks and power grids, they were not ready and robust enough for the kind of challenges that that hurricane brought us. So um, everyone, electrical engineers included, need to be trained uh, to think about this. So uh, hopefully we'll, we'll graduate those students soon, get them in the workforce, and we'll have a generation ready, ready with the mind mindset too, ready to tackle this. It's I find it interesting that you, you sort of seamlessly go over to climate change, and I wonder maybe just to draw you out a little bit more. I mean, what do you see is the overlap in how we would think about the pandemic and how we would think about climate change? I think it's just a matter of realizing that we are going to see these massive disruptions that are at global scales. And those disruptions come in the form of medical emergencies like we're coping with in uh, interruptions of the market and trade that, that come with you know, a pandemic or a natural you know, uh, storm. It could come from a geopolitical reason. But these kind of massive disruptions at, a, at scale are part of our new reality. And, and we have to plan for an infrastructure and tools uh, to respond to that. 
you're sort of talking about the reform of the curriculum in this moment. I mean, it actually gives me a lot of hope. Uh, you know, that's what the curriculum is supposed to do. It's 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 supposed to adapt, particularly in an engineering college, mm -hmm. as the world adapts. And, and I guess I wanted to ask you a little bit more about that. I mean, the the overlaps between, let's say, engineering and public health in this time. I guess even engineering and social science. We begin to see, you know, if you say, well, I want to study electrical engineering or I want to study sociology, or I want to study epidemiology. That makes sense from the perspective of a, of a student um, or a graduate student, you know, looking at the world of disciplines that's out there. And then the pandemic comes. It's like, well, what's the discipline? I don't, I don't know what the discipline is, and there isn't one. It's these many different expertises that are coming together. But then you have to, and your colleagues have to somehow go back and sort of pull that back into things that can be taught. Right. I'm making it sound like it's so easy. It's not, but I'm no, curious. No, it's, it's an enormous, you know, it's interesting. We uh, undertook a strategic planning process for our college. Gosh, we started out about three and a half years ago and we started that and started to implement it just prior to the pandemic. And what was particularly interesting is we identified at the time climate change was a theme that we wanted to address in our curriculum. In fact, a competency we wanted all students to have. And when we were having conversations, and, and by the way, other competencies we identified that we wanted to really work on were uh, social justice and equity, uh, climate change, uh, really the, understanding the, the human-centered design, and doubling down on the ability of students uh, to communicate, not just in the written word, but oral and, and you know, in technical and layman spaces. So... Um, we had already set out to try to update the curriculum. COVID has been sufficiently disruptive that it forced us to to realize that we could actually change our modality, change our approach in such a way that I actually think it's given us confidence. Now, it's worn us out. It's worn us out. But I think faculty have seen that they can do something dramatic and do something different and do it well. And I think that gives one some level of confidence going into a, the big lift that curricular updates require. And some of it, I think, has happened very organically because you can't talk to students. Uh, I give the example of, of Hurricane Ida that hit our, our uh, area last, oh gosh, I can't remember what month now. COVID has given me a lack of ability to keep track of time <laughs> so this fall. You're not uh, it was so dramatic that it became part of our curriculum, right? I mean, our, our parkway was flooded. It, it looked like a river and not a, a major highway. Uh, so the the concepts came into our classrooms very organically. And I think the ball's gotten rolling on this curricular updating um, with the momentum that, that the pandemic has been a gift, I guess, in that way. I would I also wanna... add that I yeah. think you made a comment, like what discipline solves a pandemic? Everyone together collectively solves the challenges of a pandemic. And if there was ever a time to reaffirm the importance of interdisciplinary work, it is now. And if there was ever a time to reaffirm the importance of a liberal arts education, it is now. Because young people, if they're just being technically trained and don't understand the history of the Spanish flu, you know, the 1918 flu, um, or if they don't understand what what you know horrible tragedies befell before and how technology might have kept up, uh, 
they'll be unempowered to respond as thoroughly and, and well as they can. So if anything, I've come through this experience just reassured that we need to make sure that we keep in our curriculum some core uh, liberal arts education elements. So I, I want our engineers to graduate with the sociology class, for example, um, or, or one of your history classes. Uh, and, and I want to continue to encourage our students to do that. You, you mentioned this transition to you know, different modalities, and I wanted to ask you more about that, particularly what has that meant uh, for engineering students who are used to being in the lab they're used to working in a, a large team with a professor, but graduate students and other undergraduates. I mean, um, you know, the engineering education workspace is a really variable one, but it has tended to be an in-person one. And so you had to make this transition like everybody did who was in higher ed in 2020 to offering coursework remotely. But that just scratches the surface of what happens in an engineering education. That's right. We It's a very tactical type or, you know, um, type uh, education uh, always focused on sort of the experiential learning. Uh, our programs all involve a number of classes every year that the students are together doing and building and testing. And so that first couple quarters, we turned to virtual tools. One other uh, signature of engineering education is a lot of simulation and a lot of calculation. And so we were able to teach concepts by using data we had from previous years and having the students say, well, if you had been in the lab and collected the data, this is what the data would have looked like. And, you know, and now let's do the analysis and where we could grad students would go into the lab and maybe take a video of what was done so that the students could at least see. Uh, that's sort of how we held down the fort initially. Also, our professional societies were so valuable in the response by collectively, uh, our different disciplines came together to provide video content uh, in parts of the country where people could still be in the lab, certain things would be posted that could be shared. Uh, and so my different departments were able to come up with some really meaningful content uh, through professional connections that weren't always content that was produced on our campus to get us through the, the start. Once we were able to come together or at least have our facilities and educational staff back on campus, we put together kits to send to students. And in fact, uh, we've sent thousands of kits to our students. At one point, it was was well over 3,000. I remember because that was a number I thanked our staff for at a, at a faculty and staff meeting. I've lost count now. We fortunately haven't sent many out since, right? But that was a huge undertaking because even getting the tools to put together in a kit to ship to the students wasn't trivial because of all the shipping issues uh, and backlog for a while. So it was it was a real labor of love that our, our staff put those together and mailed those to the students. So we had students actually conducting experiments at home uh, in parallel over Zoom. Uh, and, it, and so we still were able to bring the experiments to them. It wasn't as comprehensive uh, as we would have liked, but, but it helped with the learning. In fact, we got some evaluations that the students loved it and said, even when we're back face-to-face, -face, we'd love to have some component of our work that we can do at home because there's learning that comes with just tinkering at one's own pace and then coming and, and talking about it together. So we some more pedagogical pieces learned from that. Um, we actually used the time to develop some new tools as well. Some of our faculty worked with some extraordinary talented folks in our Westfall College of Arts and Design 
and uh, did some virtual reality uh, laboratories. And so those are tools we'll continue to expand upon so a student could have fun engaging in this VR space um, with different equipment from the laboratory. I'm fascinated by the, the kits. I mean, can you give me an example of, of one? What, would I, what do I receive? Well, I'll speak to of the freshman one. So usually we have the, or I should say first year. See, I'm still trying for reasons of inclusion to, to change my semantics. Our, our first year student design series. Uh, we have the students build a lot. So one of the things we sent them were a type of, um, oh, at this moment, I'm blanking what the brand name is, but it's almost like a uh, sort of a Tinker Toys, but for a teenager equivalent mm. um, to have them build different structures and test what they could build and what kind of weight it could take. So, you know, how tall you could make it, how many pieces you could make it, what kind of weight could it handle before it collapsed. And we had competitions online. So we basically sent them a, uh, you know, a box that had quite a few toys in it. Um, we did another chemical engineering like uh, intro lab that involved coffee beans, which I'll tell you was a funny one, just trying to get mm. permission to buy bulk coffee <laughs> from the university. They couldn't understand when we were all remote, how come we needed so many pounds of coffee. Uh, I'm, glad you, I'm glad it wasn't like a winemaking uh, <laughs> yeah, really something. You would have never gotten that one through. Okay, so, co- so you're, now you're sending coffee beans to. So we're to, sending coffee beans and and filters. I don't remember all the details of of that particular equipment. Yeah. So so those kits we sent to the to the first year students were a lot of fun. Um, mm. uh, I know for some of the circuits, um, you know, I classes we actually sent the little circuit boards and all of the pieces mm. so that the students could could actually develop and test circuits. Um, and in some cases, there's some pretty pricey equipment we had to send, but we're committed to the experience. And we thought, for example, you can't be an electrical engineer unless you're doing these things in your education. And so we we invested quite a bit in that. Um, and I don't regret it. It was made for a bit of a, a high level cost. You know, when you talk about the costs, you know, and, and the universities, why has it been so hard on them? You think about these costs were, were astronomical, but absolutely necessary in the moment to continue the quality of everyone's education. So one aspect of that, of course, you want to have students engaged and, and intellectually challenged, uh, even if they're at home. Um, but there's also the mental health aspect of this as well. Um, students not being able to socialize the way they normally would. Students facing, if maybe they have tensions that are at home, um, that now they're around that um, much more. There's many different things that contribute mm-hmm. to pandemic stress. I guess my question is, have you have you seen it? How have you approached it? How have you coped with it? This is one of those cases where we sort of know ourselves and the stresses we're under. And then we think, I, I think to myself like this, I'm like, if, if I was coping with this world at 19, I would not have had the tools to deal with it. Yeah. It's, it's truly a pandemic of its own uh, with mental health in young people. I hear about it from parents who are very concerned about their children. Uh, I've seen it in their college age children. I've seen it in personal friends who worry about 
I think high school and college age kids have felt this acutely, this, this stage in life acutely. And you're right. I think there's certain emotional and personal tools that aren't fully developed yet that has made this a struggle. And we continue to expect them to learn and grow and and start acting like adults in this very difficult time where even we're faltering, right? We're coping with a difficult, difficult time too. Absolutely, we've seen an uptick, a dramatic uptick in the, the uh, use of our mental health resources for faculty, staff, and students. Um, it's been, uh, I don't remember the statistics and I apologize for not reviewing this before the call, but w- one of my uh, staff who's in charge of our student success programming shared with me that our mental health um, programming was up and, or requests were up about 50%. And I know that mental health services at Drexel had staffed up to be ready for that. But even with that, it's more of a triage and not the kind of ongoing mental health that the students need. And it's not for lack of trying. It's just the demand is so great, even with it continually growing the staff. We've seen that with advising. The students go to their professional staff advisors now more than ever um, we have had also about 150% increase in, in the number of uh, appointment requests. We've started offering appointments in the evening, appointments online and in person, because some students found being able to talk to their advisor in the evening from the, the comfort of their home was a place where they could talk more openly and get the advice from their advisors, as opposed to having to get dressed, go into the, you know, and wait for an appointment in a place that might feel uncomfortable when they're dealing with something really difficult. So absolutely, students need the help. Um, We've seen it in their level of engagement. Uh, It's really tough because, you know, somebody commented, we're entering our third year of COVID, right? And um, I mean, maybe not third year yet here because it really hit us in March, but I mean, we are weary. We are battle weary here. And I think the, the mental health toll has been different at different stages. There was sort of the, the acute fear of the unknown. I think now that we're, vaccinated for the most part, but just still living with the emotional burden of how you navigate day-to-day life with, with especially with Omicron uh, rearing its ugly head, being so, um, so easily transmissible. Uh, so I, I think that people are just worn down. So we're also seeing different kinds of mental health issues that are coming from that level of weariness as opposed to the acute pieces. I don't imagine the demand for mental health care from our students is going to go down anytime soon. I think this is going to last a while. And I I actually worry a lot from both the intellectual development and emotional development of this generation coming through. It's going to take them years to recover. It's it's interesting, though, though, too, and kind of calls back to where we started this conversation. Maybe that increased demand for mental health services is what it always should have been. Well, that's an interesting point. In some ways, it's normalized the conversation about I'm struggling and I need help, where Perhaps it wouldn't have been asked for before, but now we've talked about it enough. We know this is a difficult time. If you need help, here are the resources. That's a wonderful point. Maybe we weren't, actually, I know we weren't uh, being as upfront with the resources and the encouragement of their use in previous uh, communications with students and engagements with students. It's a great point. There's another stressor, uh, which is perhaps unique to Drexel, and I wanted to see what you you know, have experienced in terms of the cooperative learning program. I mean, that's uh, for many Drexel students it's why they choose to come to Drexel. Drexel mm-hmm. students, for those who may not be aware, will spend um, some significant period of their uh, college experience actually out in the workforce and then returning back to the classroom. Um, 
how did the co-op come through this time? You talked about adapting laboratory experiences mm -hmm. and different modalities, but you're not in control of what Boeing or, or the U.S. Navy or anybody else might be doing in terms of accommodating this That's time. Right. It's such a major part of the Drexel experience. 90% uh, of our students take a five-year program option, which is uh, five years that includes three co-ops, three six-month periods where they go and spend extensive time uh, in different uh, industry sectors, uh, government, nonprofit, various industries. Students can work in something really small, startup to the biggest you know, multinational companies. It is so. It's a year and a half of their their period here, their time here, uh, and it was it was dramatically impacted at least at the start. The real tough part was uh, the students make a switch between in on campus and co op, uh, either returning to campus or going back to, off to co op. That happens in March, right after or or April, right after the um, uh, the the winter quarter ends. And so pandemic had only sort of just become you know, hard felt um, in the United States a couple of weeks before. And so what was happening was students just before their co-op started or just after they were expecting to start, were getting uh, their, their co-ops canceled right and left. And uh, I can understand companies were trying to take their operations online. And the last thing they wanted to do in the middle of this chaos was try to onboard a 18 or 19 year old, right? I can understand. Uh, some companies, however, did find a way to make it happen the whole way through, or they delayed the start of the students. So we had a number of students instead of doing six months did three months. Uh, I give a lot of credit to companies who figured out how to take their operations online and then still welcome the students. There were a lot of other students that struggled to find a co-op. And one of the ways we dealt with that is that our, our university and our faculty came up with meaningful practical projects that they would bring a professional in to do, and then they mentored the students through it. So a lot of our offices through the university created co-op jobs for students. Uh, our faculty created co-op opportunities for the students to help with research um, remotely, and we made it through. It was tough. I'm happy to say that I just heard a, a presentation by the director of our co-op uh, operations here at Drexel just last week and said, we're really back to pre-pandemic co-op opportunities for students. What's interesting is what will never return to pre-pandemic levels is the fully in-person co-op. There are mm -hmm. many companies that have realized they can hire a lot of great talent and just let the talent stay where they are and participate remotely. So the students have lots of options. And in some ways, I think it's opening up some opportunities to work in sectors that might not have otherwise brought in a co-op. But, but because they realize they can bring in talent you know, a little bit more easily in this virtual space, that that would be fascinating to watch in the years to come because it could mean also students doing co-ops um, that would be geographically located in places they might not have otherwise gone if they're working remotely. Yeah, especially um, say a kid from Philly who didn't want to leave the region. I I know one student who graduated in, in electrical engineering and went off and got a job at uh, Microsoft. She's co-op now with them twice now working for them and actually she's never been to Seattle. Really. <laughs> So Isn't that I, I amazing? It is. And a completely unbelievable story uh, two and a half years ago. And Absolutely. now something that we can totally picture. Mm -hmm. uh, just a quick reminder, you're listening to COVID Calls. I'm talking to Sharon Walker, who's the Dean of Engineering at Drexel University. And Sharon, you mentioned all the things the faculty have done uh, to keep everything moving forward to serve student needs. Let's talk a bit about faculty and their own research 
Um, what are the impacts? Kind of let's get a landscape view here. You know, if, if you're just a person who follows social media, even casually, there's a constant sort of, I think, quite quite good. I think it's quite important, but ventilating from faculty about the stresses that they're under mm -hmm. on a daily basis. But I'm curious from your from the dean's office, what are you seeing? Oh, I see great stress. Uh, our faculty, quarter to quarter, term to term, have had to teach with a different combination of challenges, whether it was fully remote or remote with the world opening up or, you know, face to face or hybrid. It seems that they've not yet had any kind of uh, steady state yet for which to even prepare a quarter and, and to teach it and to deploy it. There's been so many disruptions. Although I, I would say we got through last fall fully face to face without any major disruptions, but we still had to be ready. So faculty have constantly been training and or teaching and preparing for their classes, knowing that at a moment's notice, uh, you have to be able to go virtual, you have to be able to support a student who might have been sick. And what does that mean when you're teaching face to face, but all of a sudden you have people sick? And so now you're trying to uh, continue to train and make materials available for somebody who's not there. In the past, maybe we have had that occasionally a student take ill and you get materials. But if there's a big exposure, you have regularly have people out at different times and out of uh, synchrony with each other. And so faculty members have been juggling. And as I used the expression earlier, we're just kind of battle weary. Uh, we have taught, I've lost count of how many, uh, how many quarters we've taught now uh, since COVID started. And um, it just no term, two terms are the same and people are worn out. And for those faculty that are also very involved in their research mission of our university, um, there's just been so many challenges there. Our labs shut down for three months when the city was, you know, when the COVID first started. Um, we reopened our labs, but for the next year from June 20 to June 21, we had limitations on how many people could be in a lab and students were working on you know, on, on shifts. Um, we've only really been able to go back to full capacity in the last, uh, I'm going to say more like five months or so. Uh, and so research is happening, but there's still this, you know, this extra friction you have to work against that extra uh, force that, that just makes things that much more difficult during COVID. Um, and I think with faculty dealing with all the balance of their teaching and keeping their research going on top of, oh, I don't know, homeschooling their children or managing right. ill folks or, or caregiving with others in their lives, that amount of energy that's not going to innovative thinking will take us toll on the academy for years to come. Whether it was a paper not yet written, a uh, proposal not submitted, a student who probably should have graduated, but it kind of stayed an extra nine months because nobody really had the student or the faculty member had the, the energy to really sort of push through to the end. Um, I think we're going to see this impact for years uh, on not just the delay of great thoughts and ideas making it to light, but I, I worry a little bit about the, actually not a little bit, I worry quite a bit about the career trajectory of those who are trying to get tenure or to be promoted to full in this era because they've lost momentum uh, that is out of their control. And, and so we as university leaders have to do everything we can to support those faculty until they can regain that momentum. What is that going to look like? I mean, it, we always talk about the need for research funding, but what you're describing goes well beyond that. I mean, the, the loss of momentum in a project 
being out of a lab for a year, having disruption to a lab team. Those are just mm -hmm. three I could think of. These are hard to quantify. Absolutely. And, and I think in every discipline, it, it looks a little different. And I can appreciate every department and university is setting is going to have different constraints um, and, and different for forces acting on them. But in an ideal world, I would give faculty a reduced teaching load so that they can spend time focusing on this catch up. Uh, I would give faculty opportunities to take leave of different varieties. Uh, you know, if they've missed being able to go to a field site for years, if they are a field scientist, we need to get them back out there for a while. And maybe that means an extended paid leave or, you know, sab sabbatical like time. Um, if faculty have a backlog of, of papers to write, we have to acknowledge that when we do their annual review, that there's work in the pipeline where before we might have only acknowledged it or rewarded it when it was published. We need to acknowledge it when it's submitted, perhaps. Like acknowledging good work that's happening that just may not be going as quickly as it used to be. So how we're looking at annual reviews, even you know before we start talking about uh, tenure and promotion is important. Um, and I also think we need to look at committee work, all these pieces. Uh, I, I um, have been thinking a lot about morale generally. I, I really worry about our fact. I worry about everybody's morale as we are continuing to live through this, this tough time. Uh, faculty in particular, I'm concerned about because a morale not addressed now can have you know, decades impact on an individual universities, um, innovation and outcomes. And we have to address it. And one of the things I was reading about, I don't know if you've heard about this term, the great retreat. You know, there are people leaving their jobs and changing. I, I was recently reading about what that great retreat means for faculty. And for faculty who are tenured, they may not leave academia. They may not even leave their university, although they could make some lateral movements. Uh, what I worry about is this great retreat from engagement. You know, if they're tenured, you know, and they're just doing what they need to do. I really worry. What makes the university great is shared governance and university, you know, innovation and engagement. And if we can't recover that as COVID winds down, it will be a huge loss for the academy. It's particularly demoralizing because, of, of course, you know, reaching that, that threshold for those faculty who are on a tenure track to reach that point, that should be a moment of maximum investment back into back into the university and, and all those intangibles that go along with making an exciting and rewarding mm -hmm. career come for many people right at that at that moment. Um, so this this concern about the great retreat in which people maybe some people will will are doing it because they need to do it just to, to cope um, with mm -hmm. the extra stress of this time. But it, it gets back to what you were talking about before. Like, how do you how will we know when we've gotten to something? that appears normal. And I guess to me, the answer is we, we should stop thinking like that. There's no return to February of 2020, I don't think, for the United States. No, I don't, I don't think there is. And there's an interesting dialogue I've been following sort of in the social media space. It's fascinating. I feel like in some ways, I feel like Twitter is getting the conversation starting for us and, and sort of moving us along, sort of forcing the conversation in some ways, which I think is great. And I've been reading a lot about this in that space where academics are talking about how do you lead? How do you, how do you lead in this time? How do you re-engage people? And I don't think that there's any um, panacea here, but I would say how leaders engage and how leaders speak to what the future looks like matters at this point. Um, not trying to just return to the normal, force the old regime, 
uh, and not being overly optimistic that we're here, we're done, yay. <laughs> and just acknowledge that things are t- still tough. Uh, look how far we've come, the positive things that we've achieved together, but still continuing to be aware of it. Uh, we're not out of the woods and, and, and it's a disproportionate uh, level of stress that people are still bearing and in disproportionate impact people are still dealing with from this pandemic. What about faculty, staff, and students who have been facing or face the sort of structural challenges, um, you know, women, uh, in particularly in engineering fields, um, you know, scholars of color, students of color, you know, this, it's important to bring this back, you know, to the spring of 2020 and see that it's a, it's a viral pandemic, but it's also, um, reckoning, which should have come much sooner, I think, in my opinion, um, to deal with these sort of structural inequalities across yeah. society and in the university. I guess my, it's not even a very well-formed question just to sort of know how you're thinking about that at this time and how you're leading in that space. So the the National Academy of Engineering came out with a phenomenal report. I want to say it was July uh, uh, of this past year, July of 21 that spoke exactly to that point, the disproportionate negative impact of COVID-19 on women and people of color in STEM in the academy. And they had some preliminary data of what the first year of of COVID had wrought in people's lives, and it made some great recommendations. Um, And at that time, you know, we can look at it right now and see that those recommendations were really well thought through, but, you know, the world's still changing. Are those still the right ones? I think mostly they're really solid still. It's worth reading that study. Um, but this is, I think we're now transitioning. So it gave some structural pieces, what we could be doing. Uh, I'm very grateful to the NSF for funding the advanced program. It's been going on for years, looking at structural uh, issues that have, have challenged women in STEM. Uh, and the advanced program is also now funding work to look at issues for people of color in STEM. And I would just urge leaders and academicians to look at the advanced uh, grant outcomes. There are uh, funded projects all across the country and wonderful resources through the NSF now available on what we could do as leaders to address disparities. Now, not all of those were looking at COVID, but what they do is they look at ways in which universities have behaved and structural pieces that have caused disproportionate disadvantage. And COVID has only exacerbated those, brought them into the light. Um, but we knew those issues were there before. And, and I, I would just hope that every academic leader uses this as their moment to address those. And while we address those, while we are rebuilding our foundation and doing some deep dive and self-awareness, we must also look at the social uh, and racial inequities that are inherent in our institutions at the same time. Because if we're going to rebuild, let's re- <laughs> if I can borrow from the Biden administration, let's build back better mm-hmm. <laughs> at this moment in time. So we're almost up on time uh, in my discussion today with Sharon Walker, but I, I wanted to ask you if you might share a little of your thinking of what's over the horizon. Uh, historians are not allowed to do that. You know, we're it's malpractice for us to talk about the future. But for engineering deans, that's part of your stock and trade, right? I mean, um, not only technologically, but also in terms of where education is going. And you were hitting some of these notes and talking about what students might be looking for now that could be different from what they were looking for even a couple of years ago. But how is engineering education going to change in these years coming up? 
this could be a podcast all on its own. So the the sh- shorthand is we're actually at a point of national crisis that is being lost uh, with with COVID, which is we are not producing enough engineers to meet our technological workforce needs. And we need to bring in talented people from other countries to help fill our classrooms and develop our expertise. We need to do that and we need to keep those wonderful, talented engineers that we train in this country. Our economy and our well-being relies on having a critical mass of STEM trained professionals. And I am very worried we will not be able to meet the demand in the very near future and within this decade. I am an elected member of our Engineering Deans Council, which is a national group through the American Society of Engineering Education. And we talk about this quite a bit. Even if we filled all of our classrooms across all of our 350 some engineering programs across the United States, we are still not educating enough engineers to meet the growing demand. So not only do we have to address the curriculum and make sure we graduate students with the current relevant curriculum that we need to, to make sure students can handle this uncertain world. But we have to think globally. We have to open our borders and we have to welcome talent that want to be trained by us and welcome them in our companies, in our, in all the engineering opportunities that we have for, for our citizens as well. Um, the United States needs STEM talent and collectively uh, we'll need to open up our borders and to educate all interested people And part of the way we have to address that is is also making K-12 education as strong as possible to make sure that every American child has a quality of education to be ready for college and ready for STEM fields. And right now, our K-12 system, uh, even with all the hard work of so many educators, we're just not doing it. Uh, And and Philadelphia is a great little microcosm of that. Um, Well, not great, but an unfortunate one that we just cannot graduate enough kids that are college ready and engineering ready out of high school. So this is a national crisis of preparation uh, and education that I hope that as we come out of the, I say the political and public health crises we've been living with for the last few years, hopefully we can address this collectively and, and be ready for the future. You know, I'm at an engineering school here in South Korea and, um, it's, it, what you've just said, I think, would resonate here as well. In South Korea, is, you know, the demographics are such that um, you know the the aging of the population is happening. I think it's happening faster here than anywhere else in the world, actually. But it's a similar trend mm-hmm. in the United States, and one doesn't see. I can't see. So I'm fascinated to hear you talk about that. I can't see how you address that problem without. I mean, yeah, you could, I guess try to track more, you know, high school students into engineering and use that as a solution. But that's only a partial solution. I don't see how you deal with it without immigration. And in South Korea, that discussion is is slow moving. It's, you know, in, in other, well, I turn to you as a historian, but it's my understanding that the other points of history when we've needed talent, immigration has filled, filled the gaps for Absolutely. us, whether it was for you know, educated specialty talent or just labor in general. We need the numbers and we need to be open to people coming. The the population centers will no longer be in the United States and, and some of the Western countries. And if we want to continue to have that growth, we need to welcome those from places where, where population continues to surge. Well, I want to remind everyone that you've been listening to COVID calls and you can usually catch COVID calls live at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, Please join my discussion tomorrow at 6 p.m. Eastern time. I'll be talking to Rabbi Mike Harvey, 
about religion and faith and COVID. Uh, so please do tune in for that. And um, it's been a thrill to share this episode with my friend Sharon Walker. It's great to see you, Sharon, and kind of greedy on my part to grab this time of yours to talk. But uh, as usual, it's, it's I learn a lot when I talk with you and, and best of luck to you and all the Drexel colleagues. I miss you all. Thanks so much. This has been a pleasure. And I wish everybody a healthy 2022. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls.